Hello, YA and paranormal fans. My name is Jess, and this is Cam Cat Unwrapped. You've been listening to Imagining Elsewhere by Sarah Hosey, and today we have her here for a virtual interview, and I'm so excited to talk to her. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Jess. I'm excited to be here. Oh, amazing. Well, we usually just start with the authors telling us a little bit about themselves. So why don't we start that way today? Uh, that sounds wonderful. So <laughs> I am, I'm an author. I'm a, a reader. I'm a parent. I'm a professor of writing. And um, I'm originally from Queens, New York, which uh, I only just realized kind of as I was thinking about my work that um, each of my novels. So I have a, a, a novel called Iphigenia Murphy that came out in 2020. I have Imagining Elsewhere that came out uh, in 2022. And I have a forthcoming novel with Cam Cat um, called Summer People that's coming out in 23. And each of them start, at least start in Queens. One of them is like fully yes. set in Queens, but Elsewhere and, um, and Summer People both have protagonists who are originally from Queens and then find themselves in this journey to these other locations for whatever reason. And uh, I think, you know, it's it, it plays such a big role in kind of my imagination and in my life. I think location is just really kind of interesting and important anyway. It always like makes me laugh when you meet someone like uh, Jess, I know you're from L.A., but if you had said, oh, I, 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 my aunt lives in Queens, I would ask what her name is. And like, there's millions <laughs> of people. Do you know what I mean? But still, I you know have this exactly idea that, you, mean. <laughs> you know, that, that we have this thing in common now, even though it's just like, I don't stop every person I meet on the street in Queens and be like, oh, are you from here? Me too. Like, but, but, you know, th that's something that it just becomes so important to our identities and our imaginations, I think. So now, though, I split my time between upstate and downstate. I'm fortunate enough to be able to do that. So I've really, um, I've always appreciated upstate New York, but I feel like um, at this, this part of my life, something is, is I'm vibrating on some level up there that uh, that's where I really want to be spending my time. And I've gotten sure. increasingly into trees, which is kind of, I, I used to think we were kind of like a boring subject, but I just... Um, I've become like a tree obsessive. So I'm learning oh, a lot about that. trees and trying to like plant a lot of trees and nurture trees in my life. <laughs> that is so amazing. I've never heard that Thanks. before, but I think it's so cool. And you said that you're a parent and that you're a writing professor, which is also something I didn't know. Do you teach at a university near you or at a college near you? I do. I teach at a community college on Long Island. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, and what's that like, especially having some published works? Do you have students who are ever fans of yours coming in and being like, oh my gosh, I've read your book and I'm so excited to be in your class? Or, um, You know, it's no, actually. <laughs> I, I, I think that um, this this maybe sounds a little bit arrogant. I think I, I develop them as fans, right? So okay. um, I think a lot of times students take my classes, maybe I casually know them and, and they sign up for a class with me. And then by the end of the semester, I'm, I'm hopeful that they're picking up the book, <laughs> you know, because um, yeah, every so often someone is aware of aware of me when they sign up. But for the most part, I would say that my students, you know, are, are they're interested in writing and creative writing, but they don't, nece they don't necessarily know that I, that I have this work um, that's published and accessible to them. So sometimes they're a little surprised and that's always fun to share with them. Oh, I bet. That's so interesting. I love the idea that people just kind of discover. I had a professor once, um, I found out 
maybe two weeks into being in his class, he was on the show Survivor. So I just thought that that was so, so interesting. And I had no idea. And I, my family watched that show growing up. And so I don't know why I just didn't put two and two together. But then I got That's to the hilarious. classroom one day and I was like, I do feel like he looks familiar. And one of my seatmates looked him up and was like, oh, he was on Survivor. That's so funny. So How funny. did he do? Um, did he, did he did not win, <laughs> but his brother won like multiple times, I guess. Wow. I don't know if that like. It gives away his identity <laughs> for the podcast. But I'll be looking it up later. I know, I yeah. <laughs> yeah, he went on one of the seasons with his brother, and his brother, I think, had won before and won this season as well. It wow. was, yeah, wow. super random and cool. But anyway, back to Imagining Elsewhere, which is such a fun book. I love, I always try to dress the part a little bit when we come in for the interview. So I was going for a little bit of the eighties vibes. What is your connection to paranormal or the genre of kind of paranormal, not, not quite mystery, but kind of mysterious, magical things. And also the eighties too. What's your, what, what made you want to write about that? I mean, honestly, with this book, it was so many intersecting interests, which, you know, again, it's such a I live I'm so fortunate to be able to spend time writing and reading and and doing and doing my preferred activities, Um, because imagining elsewhere really is kind of a synthesis of like various lifelong obsessions, including um, like the Twilight Zone. So I was a yes. huge Twilight Zone fan growing up. And and I kind of engaged with a lot of that media throughout my life, whether it was Buffy or the Twilight Zone. But these kind of, um, uh, would we call, I don't know if we'd call Twilight Zone paranormal. I guess some episodes would have been, maybe not, some of them were more science fiction-y, some more, sure. more fantasy. Um, but there was one episode in particular that um, I found like, especially upsetting and fascinating as a child. And it was the one it's called, um, Oh, now I've forgotten the title. Cause the title doesn't match the show. It's a good life. It's called, it's a good life. Mm. And, um, it was an original black and white. And then they remade it like in the eighties for the movie. And they maybe even remade it after that again. But in the episode, what basically happens is you have like this little boy who is, he's all powerful Mm. and he can, if he doesn't like you or what you're thinking, he'll say, I wish you to away to the cornfield and you just die. So Ah. it's a small town and everyone is just at his beck and call. Like nobody dare offend him or push back on him because he's like a child, right? Um, and you know, if you're interested in seeing what happens in this town, you can, you can watch that episode on YouTube, but I found it particularly interesting when I was a kid and it was a story that stayed with me as I got older. And I only as an adult have, I really started to reflect on like, what was so interesting to me about that. And I think part of what fascinated me was first of all, just the basic scariness of a powerful child, right? Because, um, Children, the reason we, you know, make them live with adults is because they're not always going to make great decisions, right? Right. Um, and, uh, and then the next thing maybe that was so scary to me was that I, even as a child, maybe I was asking myself those questions too. Like, if I could do anything, what would I do? And I think that even as an adult, we all love to believe that we would be like the upstander, you know, like sure. the really good person. But if if there were no consequences for our actions, would we in fact behave as as well as we should? And, uh, you know, again, we can hope and we can strive for that, but I'm not sure that we always would live up to who we would like to be. So um, 
I think as a child, I, I, I got that in a way that, um, you know, I, I knew even though, even if I couldn't have said it. And um, as I got older and I continued to think about that story, like when I came up with the idea for the novel, it's not like a rewriting of that story, but it certainly sure. was inspired by that, that feeling, like that emotional truth to that Twilight Zone episode of like how terrifying that would be. And I wanted to think that through in terms of like also doing maybe a different jet. Like what does it mean if there was an all-powerful girl? Mm -hmm. And then coming in a little bit later in the story, not when she's nine or 10 when she's wreaking havoc, but instead when she's a teenager, like what would that look like? And um I, I don't actually remember the moment when I was like, this needs to be set in the 80s. But there was something that kind of just matched in terms of, uh, you know, the, the aesthetic and the ideas that I was pursuing with that cultural moment. And I really, you know, I wasn't quite old enough. I, I wasn't a teenager in the 80s, but I was like watching movies about teenagers. Like I was like a little kid watching movies about like 16 Candles and Pretty in Pink and stuff like right. that. And that was my my idea of what like teenagehood was going to be like and like being what being cool in teenage like high school milieu was going to be like so when i was writing imagining elsewhere um i wanted the the main character i wanted candy to she's not the main character but the main villain i guess you sure. know if you've if you've been listening to the book you know that she um she has a really kind of skewed idea of what high school is like or should be like, because that's where she's getting her ideas too. She's kind of like me when I was like eight watching 16 candles thinking this is what it's supposed to be like because she lives in this really insular community where everybody just yeses her all the time. Sure. So that's what she's kind of trying to create. So like so much of elsewhere high is just performative, right? It's not it's like grades don't really matter. There isn't actually a football team or there is a football team, but they don't play any games, you know, mm -hmm. um, because it's all trying to be this approximation of, so there's kind of a couple levels of remove here, right? It's a, a book set in the eighties about people who are kind of removed from their cultural moment, trying to recreate what it would be like to go to high school in the eighties. So there's like a couple different steps <laughs> that you're taking there. Sure. Yeah. Well, I just loved everything that you just said, especially reading the book. I felt like I was kind of in one of those twilight zoney kind of, Oh, good. Uh, it, it, the feeling gave me, it, it, it's like you just, took the words out of my brain almost in saying oh. that um, you were trying to encapsulate that feeling because I very much felt that kind of eerie, but also, you know, it's a kid. So what are you trying to find the balance here of like, okay, how much can mm -hmm. a kid get away with? And then you teach, but that's overwhelming sense of dread. Like you just put it into words so beautifully. And I definitely got the twilight zone sense. Um, as I good, was reading it. Good. So. I'm glad. I'm glad that came through. Yeah. And, and I think too, listen, Candy is a bad person. Like she's definitely <laughs> like a villain, but I do think, and maybe this kind of goes back to your question in the sense of like, I, I, I'm a YA reader. Do you know what I mean? Like I love YA. I love that moment. I love thinking about that transitional part of life. Like we're always in transition. We're always changing and meeting challenges and deciding who we're going to be tomorrow. Yes. But I do think that there's a really rich time between like 14 and 20 where you're just in these situations that really kind of are helping you to figure out who you are and who you want to be. And for Candy, she does stink, but she also <laughs> is still a teenager. Jeremy, she, there is, sure. I think, and keep listening, because I do think there are opportunities for her to kind of be like, 
is this really who, who I want to be? Or am I almost kind of cursed with this power? Has this right. ruined any potential for being like an interesting, intelligent, complex person? Because instead I can just be like, okay, you guys are going to be my best friends and you're going to be my boyfriend and this is how it's going to go, you know, and nobody's ever going to push back. Right. Yeah. I, I thought it was so interesting. And I love that you, uh, didn't really go in with the intention of setting it in the eighties, but how that kind of fell into place just because of your mm -hmm. perception of teenagehood. So that's just such a fascinating idea to me that you were able to incorporate those things. And, and it does feel almost, it, it has that kind of coming of age aspect, you know, obviously with Astrid trying to turn this new leaf too. And, and she's kind of making mm -hmm. those decisions that we wish Candy was making and like, okay, I'm going to actively try to make the best of this and, and to be good in this new place that I'm in. Um, and you just kind of want that for Candy as well. But as time goes yeah, on, I mean, we, we, we seep deeper into the twilight zone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I, I definitely, um, that was something that I had, I was very conscious of in the sense of like Astrid and Candy kind of being doubles like that, yeah. um, you know, that as, as difficult as Astrid's life is in this book, it's really an opportunity, right? That, mm -hmm. and I think that she could easily, and I think she thinks about this pretty early on, like she could easily have gone down a road to being kind of that person for the rest of her life who is always sort of a bully, in situations, whether that's a, a romantic situation or a friend situation, or even just to her mother and her sister, you know, to kind of like dominate, harass, persecute people in order to make herself kind of feel safe and better. Sure. Um, so she, this, again, as much as the, the situation is one that's kind of undesirable for her, it does allow her to kind of do that work um, that she needs to do to be hopefully become a better person. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that you can see a lot of that character development almost, but you, it just starts so early that it's really great to follow her in that journey. It's very, very fun. So I wanted to ask you, speaking of your characters, if there was any sort of inspiration that you took from your real life, from real people in your life to inform your characters, obviously um, Candy is informed on the boy from that episode of the Twilight Zone, largely, it sounds like. Um, but what about Astrid? What about Marcel? Some of the other characters who we see here who have some fun, very 80s style um, <laughs> likes and personalities as well. What what was your inspiration for those characters? So Astrid is definitely inspired by, I mean, I, and it's more of like a composite of various kind of girls and women that I've known that I've both admired and been afraid of, <laughs> you know, sure. because they, they come in with a lot, they come in hot, you know, they got confidence. Yeah. They, they have a, a sharp wit, they're funny and they can be mean and they can be really fascinating, but they can also be kind of cruel. And I would say too, that although I've worked hard to be a good person, I think that, you know, I, we all find ourselves in situations. I mean, what is high school? What is life if not a power struggle, right? In which we sure. are kind of always negotiating like where we are in a situation and, and what we can do and what we can't do in a situation. And sometimes we're willingly giving up our power because that's how we're going to make this situation function. Um, and sometimes we're finding ourselves feeling really uncomfortable uh, because we're giving up too much of our power in a situation. So I think that kind of just trying to understand 
how to navigate that dynamic in a way that's ethical and healthy, which is just like a long way of saying, like I was, I'm working through high school. <laughs> I'm working through, you know, the, the or, or I think we still continue to work through, you know, at, even as we get older, some of these kind of situations in which also for Astrid, I would say, not only does she start off as kind of a, a bully and then becomes the bullied, by the mid part of the the novel, she's like a witness, right? So she's maybe not being actively persecuted at some moments, but she is still in kind of an ethical dilemma because sure. what do you do when you see someone being oppressed? Like, what is your responsibility, especially if you care about that person, which is kind of a other level of yeah. uh, a problem for Astrid as as the novel goes on. And I think that um, that's a question, you know that is uh, unfortunately evergreen in the sense that it's not something that stops when you graduate high school, that instead I think we're, we're constantly in situations where we sometimes see something and we have to decide how, how we are going to either intervene or not intervene. And then we have to live with that decision later. Absolutely. Did I do the right thing? Should I have done more? So, I mean, just in terms of um, real people, I would say, no, like, Astrid isn't a specific person that I ever met, but she's definitely um, reminds me of, of people that I both have great affection for, but also I'm a little bit wary of because they have that, you know, um, they have that kind of edge that that can that can cut you, you know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just love what you were saying a second ago. I think it's such a powerful message of you have to make this choice. And sometimes you are making this choice that it's kind of inconvenient for you to make. Uh, but it could help someone you care about. It could hurt someone you care about. But in the end, that's on you and the decision is on you. And I think it's especially difficult to make that choice when you are actively gaining from that yeah. situation. Like how Astrid at one point does get on Candy's somewhat good side and does end up gaining, but still sees how she wreaks havoc on the rest of the town and on people she cares about. Mm -hmm. So having yeah, to kind yeah. of come to terms with, well, do I want to change or do I want to make a decision to better the lives of these people, even if it puts me in a worse situation, mm -hmm. or do I just become complicit in this? So I really think it's a very powerful message. And I, I love the way that you just worded it. It was very impactful to me. So thank you so much for sharing that aspect. It's very, very cool. Uh, I'm curious, as you were going through, did you have that message in mind that that was something you wanted to convey in the story, kind of this uh, being pulled in the direction of, or being pulled in two directions of this is kind of good for me or kind of not good mm -hmm. for me, but this is what's right that kind of moral dilemma did you have that whole thing in mind as you were writing so not initially i would say that i i when i first started writing i definitely knew that i wanted my protagonist astrid to be a complex character that i'm i'm very interested in kind of especially for female characters who are um in some ways unlikable who have big flaws you know i didn't want her to start off as like you know, just too easy, right? I wanted sure. to make her kind of a, a difficult person. And, but as I was writing what you were discussing emerged, this idea that I did want to dramatize and kind of get in, in the weeds with a, kind of really the, these questions of um, 
you know, complicity. And because yeah. um, even as you were talking about it, I was very impressed with the way that you were just talking about it. Like it, it, I think it's a, it's a resonant theme in today's culture as, you know, listen, everything we do, you know, we are now aware that it often has these negative effects that are not intended by us, but perhaps, you know, in some ways hurt other people. And sure. that doesn't mean that we need to be paralyzed by that and not do anything at all. But it does mean that sometimes I think we have to take stock as to like, okay, I have this benefit. Is it hurting other people to an extent that I can live with? Or is this, you know, like, how can I mitigate perhaps some of the harm that my benefits might be doing to others? For Astrid, I it's a her, in some ways, it's a little bit of an easier answer because the reality is that this is not tenable. Like, she, you know, if she's right. just going to look the other way, you know, like it's, uh, it's going to be pretty bad, you know, and pretty, right. she can't really ignore it forever. So in some ways her dilemma is easier than the one that many of us face kind of in 21st century kind of world, right. The 21st sure. century world, but, um, it's a but little I do more think black it, and white. I think it, yeah, I, but I think that those issues are there and I, and maybe there were even, you know, as an author, I do think so much of writing is actually therapeutic, whether or not it's like we're conscious that we're working through these various issues. And I think that for me, maybe that that's something I'm, I'm working through. And I was grappling with as I was writing this book, like, I, you know, I'm still figuring it out who I want to be and how I want to be in the world, you know? Sure. And maybe how do you respect yourself and, and go after the things you want and minimize damage to other people, but minimizing damage with to other people without impeding on the things that you want and need too is mm -hmm. also so important. Yeah. So yeah, it's it, tough. It is tough. And, and, and like you said, it's a little bit more obvious in Astrid's situation. Okay. This is clearly something that's not working out and clearly something that's bad for the majority of people, but getting to see that, you know, she had the option to just let it keep happening and you get to watch mm -hmm. her decide to, take active steps to do better, which is really, 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 really empowering and nice. And that's very cool. You had mentioned a second ago, just to shift gears a little bit, that uh, initially as you were writing, the idea of the message didn't really come to you until you had already gotten into the meat of the story a little bit. And I'm curious what your writing process was then. Did are you? We talked to some authors who call themselves more pantsers and that they just kind of write by the seat of their pants or just flying through the stories and letting the stories tell themselves to the author? Or are you more of a planner, someone who really maps out what you're going to write before you sit down and write it? So like until recently, I was definitely a pantser. And I think that with this, with this book and with others, I often start with kind of the idea and, and I mean, well, actually, I do think that one of the delights of writing is that I'll, I'll have an idea or it's maybe just a character or a scene. And I find that it, it unfolds. Do you know what I mean? Like if you get into that flow, you get into that right creative space sure. where it's not so much, you know, it just, it starts happening. And then you can go back later and make sure it makes sense and that there's a plot, hopefully, you know, and all that stuff. I, I'm working on something right now that's very far from finished, but I'm I'm trying really hard to to make an outline. I uh, I really appreciate um, Savannah Gilbo. She has a podcast called Fiction Writing Made Easy, and she's you know it's it's pretty um they're pretty short episodes, but she uses them to talk about things like each scene needs to have 
kind of its own arc, you know, with a climax and the protagonist who wants something. And the way that she talks about narrative is not for everybody, but I do find it useful in terms of thinking very strategically about how to, you know, put, put the narrative down on paper and kind of, uh, I'd like to, if not completely implemented, to be thinking a little bit more because I do think, at least according to kind of what I'm hearing from her or or guests on her podcast, like in some ways it saves you time because you're so clear on where you're going that perhaps it can liberate you know you a little bit because then you, sure. within within that structure you can be really free. On the other hand, I have been very happy as a pantser, so it's <laughs> you know. If this doesn't work, maybe I'll write something and I'll be really strategic and organized and it'll never be done or it'll be really boring or, you know, it just won't happen. Sure. So, uh, so it, maybe that won't be for me, but I'm willing to give it a shot just to see. I'm always interested in, you know, continuing to try to improve my writing and learn more about writing. So, so that's one way of doing it is to just try new things, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So in that case, if you were pantsing I guess for imagining elsewhere what was the hardest scene for you to write did you feel like there was a place where you kind of got a little bit of writer's block or, or stumbled through uh, I feel like as someone who's more of a planner just in my life obviously not in a writing context I would get to a point and not really know what mm-hmm. how to move forward so was there a scene like that that was particularly difficult for you to write you know, there there were actually several. There were there were a couple okay. of different places where I got really stymied. Like I was like, or I I kind of wrote Astrid into various corners, and I was like, I I don't know how she's gonna get out of this. Like this <laughs> is you know, which is good to be you know, you want tension and dilemma, but you also don't want it to be like, and then everybody just surrendered. Right. Because there was no way out. You know, (laughs) but I don't know how much I can say about this. So I won't talk maybe too much about it, but I really struggled with the end. And in Mm. fact, I won't say much more than there were several different endings Mm. that, you know, sometimes I really felt like I was like shoehorning like these ideas into the end that I was like, because I want this to happen. I want that to happen. And I and once I kind of let go of kind of what I wanted to happen, I was able to kind of, I think, develop a way to conclude it that was, you know. So I hope satisfying. <laughs> oh, well, I really enjoyed it. Okay. So I thought it was great. Um, Good. So for all of that ending, for going through, and, and even with the aspects of it that maybe you said that you hadn't really expected for it to be more of an 80s setting, mm-hmm. um, or even maybe the parts of it that uh, you wanted to kind of more closely mirror the Twilight Zone, kind of more closely mirror, without spoiling anything, other uh, media of the time. Uh, mm-hmm. Was there uh, any research that you had to do or did you have a lot of research to do to inform those aspects of your story? Well, I I mean, I definitely um, kind of gave myself permission to just indulge in like a lot of 80s nostalgia. So <laughs> I was watching all the movies. I was, you know what I was watching? I don't even know if it's still on anymore because nobody has cable anymore, but um <laughs> a couple of years ago, I was watching a lot of the, I love the eighties on MTV. Mm. Like they would, or they would do like the eighties music videos. And I would just leave that on while I was like doing yes. stuff. And then like, I w- <laughs> as soon as I would hear a song, like I liked, I would pop in. And I mean, eighties music videos are just so wacky. Like they just are so weird. You know, because I think also the music video, I, I don't even know if people make music videos anymore, but it was such an interesting sort of 
art form for a while that, you know, and people were doing experimental stuff. And sometimes it was like really successful. Sometimes you're like, what is going on in this video? Like it doesn't make any sense. Um, but you know, watch and watching sitcoms, which is really fun too. Mm. Um, in just in terms of like, again, you know, the, I guess, I, I, you know, maybe it's, I think there, I think there's something really unique about the eighties and the fact that so much of the pop culture was just so we like weird and sometimes in <laughs> an awesome way, like Alf or something or Mr. Belvedere right. and sometimes not in an awesome way. Sometimes you're like, I'm not sure what was happening there. <laughs> you know, as I have a footnote in the book, that says too, though, unfortunately so much of it is really problematic. And, um, it really is only there was, it was shocking to me actually how much, um, I was watching as a child that either it was going over my head and I wasn't getting it, that it was like problematic sure. or that I was internalizing this like racism and sexism that was being mm. kind of so casually, you know, included in, in sometimes even children's media. So, uh, you know, that is something that's unfortunate and, and it's interesting because I wanted to both like do an homage to this moment, but also be like, and yet, <laughs> And yet, aren't we glad that we've moved past some of this stuff being kind of normalized and acceptable? Sure. Yeah. Well, I love that. I was you... just thinking about 16 Candles, actually, mm. too. Just I was just talking about it to one of my children. And um, like, I, I can't show it to them. Like, maybe when they're older, like, we can talk Less about it critically. But like, <laughs> it's really like creepy. There's a whole like moment where, you know, there's a character who's really drunk. And the idea that she like this guy's going to hook up with her is like, like a dream come true for everyone involved. You know, like as though that that's a that's a normal thing, you know, so it's like, oh, my goodness, that's really that's. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Sorry, what were you saying? Oh, no. I mean, first, just to acknowledge what you said, it's so interesting to to think back on things that were very normal or, or things that had been normalized when I was a kid and how much it appalls me sometimes now or, or just how different it is now even. Um and it's so interesting to think back on how much I loved a certain thing. There was a movie I watched recently and I hadn't seen it since I was maybe 10 years old. And I was so excited to watch it again with my boyfriend. And um, we start watching it and I thought, oh my gosh, I clearly do not remember these parts of this movie because this is so not something that I as an adult condone or appreciate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it is, it's so interesting how, and, and great how the media has changed and how it's yeah. you know, kind of opened up to be more inclusive and more accepting of different cultures and all of that stuff is amazing. But it's so interesting how that's such a new thing and how that's not mm -hmm. often what we grew up with. Um, so that was just what I wanted to add on to what you had said. But uh, my question was just, because you had been talking about the 80s music videos you would have playing in the background. Would you have those playing in the background as you were writing? Is that kind of, or well, was it more yes. part of the research phase separately? That was more the research. I would okay. definitely put on like 80s when I was writing, but okay. um, but the music videos are just too enchanting. Like I oh, couldn't sure. have that while I was writing because I would just be like watching the music videos. Right. Um, but I, I also like, you know, just going through photo albums, you know, my, mm. my own life and, um, and yearbooks and, and, uh, you know, sometimes I did actually have to do like a little bit of research. Like I was like, Oh, well, what year, what year did the Walkman come out? You know, okay. I have a very vivid memory, um, 
of being on my block. I was growing up and there was a little boy. I, I don't even remember this kid other than this moment, but his name <laughs> was Teddy. And he had, a, it was the first time I'd ever seen a Walkman. And he said, listen to this. And he put the Walkman on my head and it was uh, Wham, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. And it was the <laughs> most amazing thing I'd ever heard in my life. Like, I, you know, it's hard, I think, to understand to people who've grown up with headphones, like how suddenly immersive it was. Like, I felt like someone had taken my life and put a soundtrack on it. I was really little, oh um, but I, I was like amazed. Like I was like, wh- it felt so good in my ears. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that at, at the time, you know, I guess they had had like headsets before for very like prior for like pilots and stuff, or even, you know, I think there were big ones, you know, in the seventies, but I had never experienced that. So the idea of the portable like cassette player was like a, a big deal. And, um, and, so just kind of mining my own experiences and trying to like remember those kinds of things and how um, and how revolutionary they seemed at the time and things that now like even like the world look book encyclopedia the encyclopedia you know that that that's something that it's probably for the best that it's like you know passe now but that was such a staple of so many of our experiences of how to learn about the world you know that's not something that's really around anymore absolutely yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about that. And I love that you had this kind of immersive experience with the Walkman. That's such a fun story. Do you feel like when you were listening to music while you were writing, you kind of had this playlist of songs you kept coming back to that would be maybe the soundtrack of Imagining Elsewhere? Absolutely. Even though so much of the 80s pop that I really enjoy is like upbeat, like even like Madonna or Boy George. That's another that was a pivotal moment for me to seeing Boy George for the first time. I mm. was like enamored of him when I saw him performing Karma Chameleon, like in that music video when I was a kid. I was I don't know. I guess I you know, it's interesting, too. It was It's one of those cultural kind of milestones too because it was the first time I'd ever seen a man in makeup and he like that was his shtick like that was his thing and just be be cool with it you know and everybody was like the 80s did have some interesting stuff like that um but but to actually answer your question the the soundtrack that was kind of going for me that I was playing when I was writing was a much darker sort of like Smith sure Depeche Mode um maybe some Tears for Fears and um uh, somebody, I'm trying to think what were the other, like the cure. So okay. like definitely because I felt like at least like the Marcella and Milo characters and the Astrid character too, like they're all a little bit more like new wave and they're all kind of into that. It's almost goth, but it's not quite goth kind of new wave aesthetic, you know, with the, the black clothes and the Doc Martens and the, right. you know, the yeah. Robert Smith t- kind of hair thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, so they're definitely um, that kind of late eighties cool, you know? Yeah. Oh, I totally know what you're talking about. That very fun, almost like glam rocky, but not quite glam rock. I, I feel like I can picture yeah. in my head what you're talking it's like about. Punk adjacent. Do you know yes. what I mean? Like a lot yes. of black eyeliner. Yes. Um, you know, and like the safety pins with on everything, that kind of stuff. But also still has but still has that weird 80s stuff going on. Right. As well. The the big hair, the all of the yes. I like I said, I, I feel like I can picture it so I know what you're talking about. I just can't put it into words. But I have such a clear image, I feel like, of mm-hmm. what you're 
saying. And speaking of music and audio mediums in general, our audience has been listening to your book uh, on audiobook and through the podcast. So what was your first experience listening to the audiobook like? Um, what was the auditioning process like for you? Just how is it to hear your own words read back to you? Well, honestly, it's a revelation. Like it's so, it's really quite amazing. And I think um, that you really just hear it differently. And and sometimes it's exactly how I would have heard it in my head. And sometimes it's really different. And sometimes that's wonderful. Sometimes you're like, wait a second, that isn't how I meant that to come out. And then sure. maybe that's my failing as a writer. But most of the time it's so interesting when someone has like a different kind of take on what you would have, how you would have presented it. Um, sure. To kind of answer the other question, it's a really cool experience to listen to the auditions because um, – CamCat gives you, or at least they gave me as an author, a couple different, three different um, people to listen to and to kind of start to narrow down. And I think they make the final decision, but they give you an opportunity to have some input. And that was like quite amazing. That was really fun because, um, you know, you hear what, like, first of all, they're all wonderful. So, you know, I have no you know, complaints, but you'd hear one say, oh, that's, that's cool. And then your next one would be like, Oh, that was neat. Like that would be great. And you sure. hear, oh no, no, this is definitely it. You know what I mean? Like right. you, you hear the one that you at least feel really captures. And I've been so fortunate that the people who have read my book books have been so so amazing. You know. And it, the other kind of funny thing is people often ask me like, well, why don't you read your own books? And I and I think that's that's really nice of you to say. And you know, um, I, I don't think I'd do a horrible job, but I'm not an <laughs> actor, and I think that I think that actually, you know, the best audiobook readers are actors. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Maybe you can't see them, but, but they're doing a very specific kind of, they have a very, very specific kind of talent that not all of us can do. And I think that we leave it to the professionals, sure. <laughs> you know, like the, let's let them do that because they really, you know, are so wonderful. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that because you're not the first person who has mentioned how just people keep coming to you and asking, oh, is mm-hmm. that your voice on the tape? And yeah. how it almost is, I don't want to say disorienting for the listener, but like when they finally meet you or when somebody who knows you finally listens to the audiobook, mm. how they're like, wait, it's harder for me to put two and two together, how this is you and how this is your writing. And it's just so interesting because uh, of how different people perceive different things. Like you said, oh, maybe that's not exactly how you meant for this thing to come across, but this is how the uh, actor, the person reading it, felt when they read it Mm -hmm. and so that Mm -hmm. was how they decided to portray it and how that just is uh, disorienting feels too negative of a word but how you just kind of can separate there yeah it's it's defamiliarizing and that's not a bad thing to be defamiliarized from your own word work but it but isn't that interesting I think any sort of person creative writer right whether you're a film writer or, or a book writer you know once you give it away, it becomes somebody else's. So, you know, I think maybe it's good for us as writers to hear audiobooks because it reminds us that when our readers are looking at it, they're hearing it, whatever, like they're bringing their own voice and interpretation and whatever they're taking from the page. And we, we have no control over that. Once, once we put it out there, you know, it's, it's now up to them, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's so neat. And I love hearing your perspective. I love hearing all of our authors' perspectives on how they felt re- uh, listening to the audiobook because I just could Im- couldn't even imagine having your own words read back to you. Mm-hmm. What kind of really cool and also kind of 
uh, putting things into perspective type feeling that that would give you, which is very cool. And to shift gears a little bit, but also to talk about kind of uh, another medium of and like a degree of separation, maybe even if this book were to be made into a movie and I would assume a very colorful 80s style I already have awesome like kind of (laughs) grease themes playing in the back of my head a little bit just as far as the the way that it would be shot what kind of things would you expect from a movie of your book you know it's so funny actually you said colorful and that sounds right to me but I almost I see it as kind of starting off at least like really grim. Sure. Or maybe there would be that cool contrast, right? Of like this kind of creepy, grim, falling down town, you mm-hmm. know, where it's, you know, and then like Candy's bedroom is like, or like the the sweet shop where they hang out is like sure. all fluorescent and 80s out and Jane Fonda workout, you know, leg warmers. Yes. And, you know, like, huh. so you have this contrast between this sort of bleak existence because really elsewhere is a pretty bleak, town like the people there don't have a lot of hope you know so so it's a really grim and sad place at the same time that you have this kind of fluorescent 80s day glow stuff that you know candy's making sure that everybody's wearing pink you know because she really wants everything to appear like wonderful and exciting and and cool um so I, i kind of would see it that way i mean that would be just so cool i think sure and do you have in mind any sort of actors or anybody who you would cast in your movie? You know, I, I do. I think about <laughs> it all the time. And, um, you know, I, I have to say on the one hand, like the dream cast would be we'd have to get a, like a time machine because we would sure. have to go back in time and get Molly Ringwald to be Astrid. Of course. Uh, she was like, you know, in all the John Hughes movies. And then I actually don't even know this actor's name. I think he only did that one movie, 16 Candles, but the guy who played Jake would okay. be a great, like Vince, like just like mm. that handsome smoldering kind of guy. Although even in retrospect, the guy who played Jake for by 16 Fit Candles fans out there, like he seems like super old. He doesn't look like he's in high school, <laughs> but I don't know. But I, you know, there's also just so many cool young actors right now, I think. Like this, it just seems like so many, like every time I turn around, I'm like, oh, like that person is like so young, but they're so interesting. Um, I definitely, I feel like for Astrid, maybe like a Millie Bobby Brown, like she's so cool and interesting. And she also has that kind of like, I feel like she can play that kind of like a little bit mean. Sure. And then, um, oh, what's her name? I was thinking for Candy, is it Catherine? She played on, um, she was in Big Little Lies. She was the daughter. Oh, okay. Big Little Lies. I'm trying to remember. I don't Hold know. On. Give me names, one second. But Kath- Catherine Newton. Catherine Newton. So okay. she's like, she just has that look. You like that blondish look. Yeah. And of course, like, I would love like Zendaya as uh, Marcel. You know, this, I mean, she just is always so good. And she has like, she's such a, like that withering look she's so cool like she'd be such a good marcel yeah um and then i feel like for for astrid's mom i don't know if you know miranda july you live in la so you probably know who that is oh she's like i'm just terrible i think but she's she's just like she made that movie she's made a couple of different movies she's very avant-garde but she definitely has that kind of kooky energy like the the tightly wound genius energy that i feel like um astrid's mom probably has yeah okay would be my dream cast yeah i don't i guess i don't know the boy actresses well so i don't (laughs) i 
I don't know. Maybe like a, if we could get a Timothy Chamelay in there, I think that would be, he's always good and stuff. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. I think that that's star studded enough too, that I think the okay. people would, would relate <laughs> to all the different characters. And it's very funny. You mentioned uh, the guy who played Jake being a little old, but that's why we have our time machine too. We're going back that's in right. time. Anyway, that's we'll right. just pluck him at a younger age. <laughs> or like, you know, there's like the whole Beverly Hills and I two and oh, when they had, when they started that show a million years ago, like 89, I think they started that show. Oh, all wow. of the actors were in their twenties and they were all playing high school students, which so I mean, funny. it's just like, it's just so fun. It's so weird. Well, speaking of just perception of what high school is supposed to be like, I remember being young and thinking high schoolers just looked so adult and now yeah being older than high schoolers when my brother was in high school, my younger brother, whenever he would bring friends over, when I would go pick him up from school or anything, I would look at all of his friends and think, you look like babies. You just look like anybody. I know, children. they're not like these men. Yeah. I know, yeah, not like these, exactly, these men with the chiseled faces or whatever yes, else. Yes. And it's always very funny to think. And, you know, to some extent, it was because I was so little that everyone else looked mm -hmm. so big. But even now, yes. looking back on some of the actors who were portraying young kids, I was like, mm -hmm. huh, interesting casting Although, choice. But I will say the other kind of interesting thing, though, too, and I'm seeing this, you know, I, I noticed this, too, is that I think especially for boys, sometimes they start high school, they are they look you know, they still look like children by the, by the senior year, they are like men. <laughs> You're like, Oh my God, that, how did that happen? <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah, but absolutely. They're always casting these like old people to play oh, teenagers. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I'm, tall and I've always been pretty tall but I have a very distinct memory of my freshman year of high school most of my guy friends being shorter than me and then going into my sophomore year of high school and having to look up at all of my guy oh, friends so, it, yeah it's like happens overnight it's yeah. all of a sudden it's so so funny you have kids too you said right are they high school aged ish no no they're, they're 12 and 10 oh, but I have okay. to say like even my my 12 year old when when he last year, like all of, you know, all of the girls, is it not all, many of the girls in his grade, they were like towering over him, you know, just they, <laughs> they were just growing at a faster rate. It was funny to see, you know, like, um, you know, that's such an interesting and it's a tough age, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're very sweet. You know, they're very, very sweet. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, that's good. <laughs> I remember yeah. being that age and I remember my mom always telling her friends how weird she felt because she was used to seeing like a little girl walking yeah. through the halls of the house or whatever and how it kind of started freaking her out because she would catch out of the corner of her eye an adult and that was me. Mm -hmm. But it was like an overnight thing of like, oh, like I'm expecting if you're going to be passing you to be small and you're just bigger and taller than I <laughs> Yeah, and it's and middle school is such a weird like it's such an interesting time and um I read I I think it was in there's a book called uh, and then they stopped talking to me <laughs> like memories of middle middle school um and I forgot the author's name but one of the things I think she says in this book is that we have such vivid memories of middle school and high school in part because so much is happening with our developing brains and like stuff is happening with your brain that, you know, you was like infancy was a big deal. And now middle school and high school are a big deal. Right. And so you have these really vivid memories and, you know, high schoolers in particular get a bad rap for being like dramatic about stuff. But the reality is these are authentic feelings. It's not like, sure. 
they're like just blowing it up. It's like they really feel like their heart is breaking, you know, oh, when I something know. goes wrong. And um, and we have to be sensitive to that, I guess, right. when we're dealing with them <laughs> and respect that they're they're going through like a a, a lot of big stuff, you know. Um, sure. And yeah. so I yeah, I am really interested in both that age and then as I'm kind of seeing it with my own kids, I start to embark on adolescence. I do think it, it's like, I don't want to say triggering because that's such a bad like connotation, but like it definitely like reminds you of a lot of stuff and does bring up, I think a lot of the old anxieties and, and fears and, um, you know, kind of other associations that we had from that, that time of life. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, as much as I love this topic of conversation, I should probably bring us back to the questions. <laughs> Gabe is like, we only have this much time left. So okay. back to <laughs> the questions. Um, you had previously mentioned your books, Ephigenia Murphy and Coming Very Soon, Summer People, which we're very excited to have come out in August, I believe. Right. So yes, that's I'm super so exciting. Uh, what can you tell us about those books? So Iphigenia Murphy is also set in the past. It's in the 90s, though. So it's a little okay. bit, a little more contemporary. Um, and that one is a is a really heavy, it's a, you know, it's it it's um it's more of a heavy kind of topics mm. novel about a runaway, right? Since she's she's run away from a difficult situation at home and she's searching for her long lost mother. So she starts living wow. in a park in Queens, in Forest Park. And um yeah that that book is definitely um you know in some ways I think the idea of running away and living in a park is certainly like an adventure story. Um in that you know it, it's an opportunity for for Iphigenia, the protagonist, to kind of see what she can do and what she's made of as well. But that sure. one is definitely a, a much kind of more, it's a pretty serious book. Okay. So that was my debut. And then we have Imagining Elsewhere, which I think also takes on some serious issues. I mean, it, the bullying stuff is no joke. Yeah. Um, but definitely, you know, I think that the the supernatural paranormal ele elements, you know, make it, give it a different kind of uh, entry into to some of these uh, topics. Okay, and then yeah. the next one also is not quite, I, I mean, it's, it's got some serious stuff going on. It's got uh, attempted murder in it and it has um, some serious environmental issues and some substance abuse stuff. And summer people is about a young woman who has ADHD and she, um, is very kind of, um, sheltered in a lot of ways. She lives in a rural community upstate and, when she and her best friend kind of discover that this crime has been committed in their community, she really has to make a choice, like whether or not she's going to rise to the occasion and kind of uh, do the work that will maybe wind up kind of uh, really stirring up some problems in her family and in her community. Um, and I think you can tell that she, she, you know, she's going to have to, right. That uh, sure. she, I'm not going to say, and then the, then the novel ends because she chose not to, <laughs> but um <laughs> But that one is kind of my love song to ADHD, which is something that I have and that um, mm. I feel has been both kind of something that was a challenge for me, certainly, uh, particularly when I was younger, but is a little bit of my superpower now, I think, as an adult, in, in part because I have like hyper focus and yeah. because I get to spend so much of my time doing my preferred activities, like I yes. feel like it's a little bit less of a struggle, but I do... I remember the struggle and I do face the struggle like daily when I have to do things that are, are like paperwork that, sure. you know, like I immediately, you know, I'm like 
I'm always putting like my social security number where my phone number is supposed to be. And, you know, I guess it's easier now that a lot of stuff is online, but, um, but for example, you know, there are, there are always going to be things that are going to be a little bit difficult, I guess, is, is what I'm getting at. Absolutely. Well, I, it's so interesting that you bring up ADHD because I just know a lot of people who have it and I love the reference of it as a superpower, um, referring to it as a superpower, I just think is so accurate in a lot of ways and also just a great way to to think of it as something that can be advantageous for people and advantageous mm-hmm. for you especially and as a person who can hyper focus and and stick to the things that you're writing and and kind of stay on that one track is really really a gift so I love that you can see it as a superpower and, and all, to all my friends who have ADHD who see it as a superpower it's something that I just find yeah. so heartwarming and, and wonderful. Um, well, so- I think uh, I'll just add to that, that sure. I, I do think that the conversation around like neurodiversity in general is really changing. And we're not, it's not just like, oh, this is just like this bad disability thing. I think as we start to recognize how it presents differently in different people and how we can sometimes harness our difference in ways that can be really positive. Absolutely. Yes. Well, as much as I would love to delve oh. more into this with you, um, I do have one more, I guess, Okay. like listed question. It's not like a huge question, but I'm still excited to hear your answer um, of what books you're reading right now or book you're reading right now. Well, I am just finishing up Rainbow Rolls Scattered Showers, which is she's a mm. YA author who I just love her books. I mean, I'm not alone. She has a huge fan base, but um, Eleanor Park is just. I think the gold standard, like if you're looking for the next book to read and you want something YA, I would absolutely recommend that one. Okay. So, but her, her collection scattered showers is, um, short stories. And actually that's my other kind of passion is short stories. So it's like the perfect, like blend of like, of these two different kinds of uh, these two genres that I am, I'm so into like YA and, um, and short fiction. Although I have to say too, that some of rainbow rolls work in, especially in this collection, there are some, adults i don't know if we i don't i don't actually i'm i'm getting generically confused she does have some work that is marketed as for adults and some of that is in this collection as well it's a wonderful collection scattered showers um so that's uh, i highly recommend it oh that's so great i'm excited to look into it more that sounds really great well before we get going sarah where can our audience find you so you can find me at sarahosey.com. That's my website, S-A-R-A-H-O-S-E-Y. And I'm also on Instagram and um, Twitter, although I've been a little bit less on Twitter lately. And I'm actually moving a little bit more into TikTok. So oh, okay. I, I, don't have a ton, I don't have a ton of TikToks yet, but get ready, world. I'm just kidding. Uh, but I do have – I actually am I'm working on something right now that I'm hoping to, to get off the ground in the next couple of weeks. And a lot of it's just like writing – Amazing. As, so as a creative writing professor as well, I've kind of started to crystallize some of like the, you know, the things that I can kind of get into a minute or two just as suggestions or ideas to get people um, or, or hints, you know, whatever that yeah. uh, might, might be useful. So I'll be probably posting those in the in the next couple of months. I'm getting ready to start doing that. Oh, well, that's so awesome. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to seeing what Thank you, you post. And yeah, I mean, thank you so much for coming on with us. This has been so much fun. 
Well, you are delightful and I loved talking Thank to you, you. and uh, I really appreciate, I really appreciate the conversation and, and I hope everybody enjoys the rest of the book. Yes. Well, thank you so much again for coming on with us and for the lovely conversation. It's been so delightful. And to the listeners at home, you can find Imagining Elsewhere in ebook, audiobook, and print formats on our website, camcatbooks.com. And keep an eye out because coming in August will be Sarah's new book, Summer People. You can find CamCat Unwrapped on all major podcasting platforms or listen to us on our YouTube channel or watch us on our YouTube channel. <laughs> And make sure you give us a follow on social media at CamCatBooks. Thank you so much for tuning in and unwrapping another one of our books to live in with me. My name is Jess, and I'll see you guys next time here on CamCat Unwrapped. <laughs>